Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This episode was a long time coming. I sat down with my good friend, Marco Santori. And when I mean good friend, I actually mean that. Marco is a president and chief legal officer of blockchain.com, formerly known as blockchain.info, one of the oldest and largest Bitcoin companies in the space. Marco is also known as the Dean of Digital Currency Lawyers. He joined us today on Untold Stories. Marco really believes that a good lawyer doesn't just say no, but rather explains the law, the risks, and the potential rewards of a given strategy. He goes on to state that a great lawyer has to be involved in both advocacy and advisory work. Someone who actually has to be working in the business side of things as well to understand and then eventually can change the law to reduce risk. We reminisced on his work developing the first FinCEN guidance and how it was vital to engage and not ignore the regulators. Marco was the author of the SAFT, the Simple Agreement for Future Tokens, and he points out that the press at the time were only reporting on negatives and how they had to wrestle control of the narrative of crypto. Marco also explains the funds travel rule, the FACTA, and discusses the importance of maintaining non-custodial solutions in crypto. He explains his work with the SAFT, how he authored that, and expands on its achievements and things he would have liked it to be. In the end, he states that the core constant of blockchain.com and his plans for the future are to maintain and to grow the user experience and usability of Bitcoin and blockchain, but at the same time, maintaining the privacy, security, and decentralization. Such a wonderful episode. Give some love to the sponsors, and I'll talk to you guys in just a minute. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash charlie it's such an easy card to use you get the card in the mail you download the bitpay app you put bitcoin on the app and when you want to send bitcoin from the app into your debit card it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered it's really so easy you almost wonder like why didn't this come out in 2011 when bitcoin first launched well it was very difficult to do in fact i actually tried to launch my own debit card but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees and I don't like that. So check it out. Bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. 
So check it out. You're a super loyal podcast listener, and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna, and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free, regularly updated, and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz. So make sure you check it out, bitpanda.com. They are a big sponsor of ours and please give them some love because they love me. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today we are so lucky and fortunate to have on the show the Dean of Digital Currency Lawyers and a good friend of mine, the President and Chief Legal Officer of the most well-known company in our space that's been around for almost a decade. You guys are now going to be celebrating your 10-year anniversary probably in a year or two. Marco Santori, thank you so much for coming on the show and welcome to Untold hey, Stories. Hey, Charlie. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. What's I guess what's it like um, running a company that's in the crypto space that's going to be celebrating, like, what is it? It's not bicentennial. It's, is it bicentennial? No, it's, it's a centennial. <laughs> it's not quite. No, it's not centennial. It's, it's a decade. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been quite a while, that's for sure. And, you know, this company was around long before, um, before I joined or even really before I started advising and representing the company publicly. I mean, e- a few of the a, a few of the OGs in the audience might remember that I signed on as Blockchain's Global Policy Council uh, almost six years ago. I remember that, and so when you joined Blockchain.info, I almost said to myself, "Why?" Because you, um, you know, if you looked, if, if someone didn't know you and looked at your 
uh, resume and looked at, you know, your education and what and what you did before you got into crypto, um, into Bitcoin, I should say, because when you got involved, um, when we first met, there was no crypto, like the term didn't exist. So like, <laughs> it was all Bitcoin. Um, but you were a partner at two of the largest firms in the world. And and then you jumped into and you were, you know, advising a lot, which was great. But then you kind of jumped full time into crypto. Uh, and so I guess a lot of people um, who, who are not lawyers, who are, who are not attorneys like myself would say like, wow, like that must mean he really believes in this industry long term. But I'm, I'm almost curious what your lawyer friend said to you when you like, I'm curious, did you have that? You know, I, I interviewed someone who's an executive and he's Korean and I interviewed him and, and an executive at a big crypto company. And he's like, my parents basically almost disowned me when I when I left to go full time from a bank to Bitcoin. What was that like for you? Well, look, I'll I'll tell you one thing. It did take. Uh, literally years to build up uh, family support, I should say spousal spousal support uh, for the decision. And um, that only happened after I'd spent a lot of time doing the hard work, the hard work of thinking about um, what this would really mean, the hard work of analyzing the metrics for the industry, and of course, the hard work of soul searching. But um, you know, you're going to be surprised to hear that almost every single lawyer I spoke with about this um, had the same message, which was, you lucky bastard. This is this is the right this is this is to- totally the right move. Um, and I and I, I kind of wish that I was doing what you're doing, because you have to understand, look, there's always going to be the lawyers, lawyers who really uh, enjoy sitting behind a desk and being reactive when things come onto their desk and addressing those things in an ethical and effective way. And that's great. I, I think we all have an element of that inside of us, certainly all of us uh, who have achieved any uh, amount of success in, in the legal world have an element of that. You have to be good at those What's things. What's a lawyer's lawyer? <laughs> That, that that's that's the kind of person I've never and, heard that and, term before. And, and you can contrast that you can contrast that with a lawyer who really appreciates the business side and who is willing to roll up sleeves and get hands dirty and lead deals and do more than just be uh, reactive and and from my perspective i obviously i i really wanted to be proactive i decided uh, a while ago that I believed in the principles behind this technology. I believed in the technology itself. Um, and I felt a little bit like uh, I was letting it all pass me by, uh, kind of watching from the side. When I when I met you, I think we met, I think one of the first emails, I, I was doing the research. Um, the first, so it's interestingly enough, uh, the first email that we exchanged was in 2013. And so the email goes like this: Patrick Merck, who's the general. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I didn't say anything yet. I'm already worried. I'm already worried as to what it's going to say. So Patrick, who is great, Patrick, who is the uh, actually at one point, I love how like I don't, you know, I love how everyone worked for everyone back in those days. But so Patrick, who was actually at the time the general counsel for the Bitcoin Foundation, and for the first year. The Bitcoin Foundation was great because it's like we knew what we were trying to do. There was a need for it. Everything worked out. There was a lot of momentum. But then things kind of, you know, went went haywire. Um, but so anyway, so Patrick was a general counsel. He's also represented Ben Instant, I think, at the time or he didn't. 
but he previously did. And it was so funny how I met Patrick too. But so, so this was, this was who was the, um, the, uh, legal committee of the Bitcoin foundation back then. And this was an email sent out by Patrick. And so he said, Patrick emailed out and he said, important was a subject line. And he said, I think that all Bitcoin foundation committee members need to have Bitcoin foundation email addresses. And that was like the subject of the email. That was the email. And um, on the committee was Mike Hearn, who was on was law and policy. It was you, state regulatory affairs, and Brian Klein, who was legal defense. That's a crazy good committee, though, because you got you got Mike Hearn, who's like says no to everything, who does the lawyer's job anyways, and then you have you and and Brian, who are the only two lawyers, you know. Additionally, with 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 Patrick, because when Patrick was working with Bitinstant, he wasn't a no guy, and this is why I really like Patrick. But you three are like the only lawyers, and I work with hundreds of lawyers, um, probably not hundreds, dozens, that actually just don't immediately say no. And I really want to understand why. Like, why Why is it your job or why is it like a compliance officer at a bank's job to automatically say no? Is that true? And, and if, if not true, then, then where am I wrong on that, on that, I guess, path? You know, you, 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 you raise that issue in, in exactly the right way because you compared the lawyer to the compliance officer. The lawyer's job is not to tell you to follow the law. The lawyer's job is to explain the law to you and to explain the risks and um, the potential rewards and coming up with, and it's his job to create strategy. The lawyer's job is absolutely not to say no. That is the principal's job. That is, that is the client's job. And you know who is oftentimes the client? The compliance team. The compliance team is oftentimes the client. They need to know what are the legal boundaries here? Where are the guide rails? At what point do things become extraordinarily risky? And at what point are they just a little bit risky? Because we have to be honest with ourselves in business. And this is, this is part of the reason I crossed over to the company side. Um, in business, it is oftentimes the company's job to take risk and turn it into money. And that is actually a really difficult thing to do intelligently. And it's a difficult thing to do in a way that um, in, in, an, in an eyes open way. Usually and risk that's is, what, a, is a defensive thing. So how do you put risk is risk is the company's job. It is the company's job to take risk. And it is the lawyer's job to make sure that the company, the usually the CEO, understands the risks that they're taking and not just that. That's sort of that's 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 sort of step one, right? It's not the lawyer's job to say no, you can't do this. It's the lawyer's job to to ensure the CEO and the board understand the consequences first of all of what they want to do, and that's sort of table stakes. That is the sort of basic introductory lawyers one hundred and one. That is how you approach. Did they tell you that in legal school, like on the first day? Yeah, in law school, <laughs> lawyering one hundred and one. No, but listen, that truly that is that is just table stakes. That that's what separates an incompetent lawyer from a competent lawyer. What makes a good lawyer is a lawyer that can look at those risks and propose creative solutions. Propose solutions that aren't just sort of created from an academic perspective, but from a business perspective, solutions that work given the priorities that the client has already articulated to you. 
that's what makes a good lawyer. And then what makes a great lawyer is one that understands the landscape and under, can, can look down the road and understand how is this decision going to affect the company given the fact that we have these uh, shareholders who are not supportive of management and we have this competitor who is already running a behind-the-scenes investigation on us trying to find a way to uh, to trip us up. And I'm obviously, I'm making that up. No, it's but I know, a- I know companies who do that. I know companies who are tr- constantly trying to trip up their competitors. And I understand that, you know, you have shareholders, you have investors and, you know, to a point where it's not illegal, that's almost your job to, to understand what your competitor is doing. But I guess I'm a little dismayed. Thankfully, I'm not an executive. You know, I don't really want to ever be in your position. You, you're, you, you said you're jealous of my position. I, don't ever want to do that if I can if I can continue to be in this space without having to like be you know in a position where I have to make executive level decisions and I'm doing like something right um but I guess how how do you how did you Marco how did you turn from someone where if the question was asked um because it must have been at some point in your in your career or your life when when a client would ask hey Marco I know these are the regulatory bounds, but I need to make this work. How do I make this work? Most most lawyers or attorneys would say it can't work or you know these are very finite bounds. You've been called an architect. Um, not many lawyers get called an architect. What that means is you went out on a limb and said, I'm going to you know, I'm going to see what sticks. I'm going to expect maybe expand the bounds. I'm going to going to going to play around. I'm going to engage with regulators. I'm going to going to, you know, move rocks, move mountains. At what point did you say that before you actually did it? And we talk about what you did. Did you have like a point in your life where you said, I'm not going to sit behind this, you know, this 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 legal desk the rest of my life. And I want to actually get something fucking done. <laughs> I'll tell you, that's kind of how I came to law, I started off as a litigator. And litigators' jobs are not to simply advise and say, this is what the law says. Thank you. Please pay me $1,000. Um, a litigator's job is to advocate on behalf of his client. And that's a very different thing, right? There are advisors when you talk about lawyers, and then there are advocates. People who have only done one of those things, I feel like are missing a big chunk of why of, of why people come to lawyers in the first place. Most people don't just need to know the law, right? They need someone who is, like you said, going to push boundaries, who you explained it as moving mountains, and sometimes it feels like that. But they want people who are going to find a way to do what they want to do within their risk tolerance. It's just like investing. You don't go out there and say, oh, I want to find um, the best return, period. Nobody thinks like that. No professional investors think like that. You look at risk-adjusted returns. And lawyers who are successful know how to not only explain what those risks are, but can go out there and actually change the risks. Change the risks. It's, it's, there's a common saying that um, risk can never be eliminated. It can just be moved. It can just be shifted. And... That is, a, I think, a monumentally myopic approach. I, I truly do. That's the kind of thing that deal lawyers say or folks who have been litigating their whole life say. Folks who have done both, lawyers who have done 
both advocacy and advisory work know that actually oftentimes if you put on your business hat and think like a business person, you can get out there and you can literally change the risks. And that's what we've done. We have changed the law um, in a number of different jurisdictions over the years. I mean, as you said, we've been doing this for a long time. Um, but that's the most valuable thing, I think, um, that a lawyer can do, particularly an experienced one. I usually uh, compare U.S. you know regulations and politics in the crypto as it pertains to the crypto space. And we bring on people and I always have, you know, international executives and we compare it with the, the global, you know, political structures and sandboxes and blah, blah, blah. And the, the, the common denominator and what everyone says is that the U.S. is lagging and um, we're just going to either like, you know, we've had a, I've had exchanges and I've had companies say that where they just turn off the U.S. and they, they do globally and the global regulators, Japan, for example, or whatever welcomes them with open arms and they just don't want to deal with it anymore in the US. However, you still the US has to be dealt with and there are a lot of companies, a majority of them still operate here and service United States citizens. You've been at the you've been a soldier at the forefront of of this for I don't know, like since we've known each other like probably 6 7 years now. That's a long that's a long ass time. Do you ever see yourself as a diplomat or as like almost like a mediator between you're, you're, you're one of you're one of the very few people that I not only that I know, but that I know of, you know, it's a big difference that not only get a lot of respect from the crypto space, you, you've able to maintain that. And which is a very difficult thing in and of itself. You represented a ton of people. And now you're you represent the president of one of the largest companies in the space. But not only that, but you've probably you, you, you know, you. You're a blockchain ambassador to the state of Delaware. You're an advisor to the International Monetary Fund. You're one of the authors of the SAFT project, um, and you're a partner at two two firms. So, do you ever see yourself as a uh, an ambassador or as a mediator between um, regulators and governments and companies? And how do you walk that tightrope? How do you maintain the respect uh, and the seriousness from from both sides? Well, um, so you mentioned the word uh, diplomat, and that's, that's <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you call somebody a diplomat, it implies. Um, yeah, I guess it's a negative side. connotation in today's world, well, the it, word diplomat. I, I don't think it's but, crazy. I don't think it's crazy. It, it, it suggests that, that there are two sides who um, need to communicate, but aren't communicating in, uh, in the best way. And certainly over the last six or seven years, as you said, that, that, that we've been at this, it has been a constant, um, it has been a constant effort to communicate in the right ways. Because look, there's not a regulator in the world that believes what you believe about crypto. That there, there is just not. Even, even the greatest champions out there, um, you know, crypto dad and crypto mom in, in the U.S. federal government, for example, they they have their own interests and, the, and their own reasons for liking this, and I believe in in particular in the case of those two that they're honorable, that they're honorable interests. Um, but for uh, for the rest of the regulators out there, they may believe that what we're doing here is valuable. They might believe that what we're doing here has a future, but the language they speak is markedly different than the language that you speak and the, and the language that 
my CEO speaks and that um, the core developers speak and the miners speak, right? That- so why are we so quick to assign nicknames to these people that we love, like the chairman of the, or the former chairman of the CFTC was Bitcoin dad, you know, like just because he said, just because he wasn't hostile towards Bitcoin, you know, as, as others were. And then we're so quick to assign these, like, you know, we're based, like, I don't know. I feel like Craig Wright comes out, says he's Satoshi, but if the chairman of the F of the, if the chairman of the SEC comes out, says I'm Satoshi, we wouldn't even ask for verification. We'd all believe him (laughs) because we want it so badly. There's a, there's an element of truth to, to us, um, seeking allies in government, right? What we, what, what we've done since the very beginning is mostly the same strategy. You find the internal believers, you find, you find the internal evangelists in any organization that you want to advocate before, or that you want to develop a relationship with. You can't develop a relationship with an organization. You start with those internal advocates. And if you can cultivate that person, if you can give them the tools that they need to achieve the goals that they want to achieve, you've not only um, advocated before that organization, but you've you've probably made a friend, and you've probably developed a real a real long term relationship. I mean, look in this in this world, you must help people. There, there is there is there there is no exception to that rule um, in world governments. There is no exception to that rule in business. Um, regulators need help just like everybody else. And what, and the strategy we've always taken is to try to be a useful conduit of information when they need it. Um, and certainly Do you feel it, that's, that's been beneficial over the years. Look, Charlie, if it, if it, if it wasn't for the work, especially the early work of, of the Bitcoin foundation circa 2013, 2014, none of this stuff would even be legal. We have to be honest with ourselves. We could have, we, we could have sat behind our computer screens and shipped and developed code and executed and I should, <clears throat> I should say, deliver code and developed products and executed True and sort of kept our heads down in the cypherpunk sort of way. And you know what? This would all be illegal right now. None, well, that's none- why I'm doing this show. One of the reasons I'm doing this show, you asked me, is is because... For this reason, a lot of the early stuff got lost and people just don't know what happened. You know, like, I, Marco, I need to set the stage for a second. Like, let's go back to those years, 2013. I know I joke about this a lot, like when I make speeches and I'm and on the show and, and people laugh, ha, ha, ha. But I'm going to be serious for a second. Like, those early years from 2011 to 2014, maybe, like early 2004, like, Actually, I'm not even going to say 2014, like the end of 2013, like that last month, like December, right before Mount Gox, you know, like, well, just the whole silk road. Those years were were very childish and myself included. When when you walked in the room, when you when you saw our industry and you were a professional, you know, you were a professional. You had been working for law firms for years. You were you were a litigator. Uh what did we look like? Did you like almost shake your head and say, oh boy, what are we going to do here? <laughs> I, 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 I will confess to one thought, which was that uh, before I was one of these people, I said, wow, these people are going <laughs> to be 
a lot of lawyers employed for a very long time. And I still have those same lawyers employed for a very long time. <laughs> well, I'm sure some of them were good, and I and and certainly there are those who 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 have who have uh, who got in early and saw the same value um, and are still around. Right? The, you mentioned um, Patrick Merck is still advising folks in the crypto space. Um, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Dax at Perkins is doing is is still doing quite a bit of this. Some of these really early folks, and Brian Klein is a great example of that. And look, a, a lot of people made a lot of missteps. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but when 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 that happens, it's the criminal defense lawyers that um, that kick into gear. And and Brian's been doing this for you know since the beginning. So. So those original, those original people were there. Were there others? I mean, you don't obviously. I'm sure there were. You don't have to name them, name them specifically, but you know, in, in that first committee with the foundation, we were all like, you know, revved up. There were committees. We were going out there. So now you guys are armed with your committee. It's 2013. You got other lawyers that you look at colleagues that are now saying, okay, we can do this. What were some of the first things that you said as a as a group? We need to do. We need to reach out to who are some of the allies that you reached out to that maybe you were surprised were uh, giving you good feedback or people that didn't give you feedback. What was the landscape like in those years? How and how is that different from now? It was difficult to be proactive then. Um, and I say that because there was just so much happening to us from a regulatory perspective. It was, you know, the there's the overused expression of playing whack-a-mole. Uh, with different regulators around the world, but in a certain way, that that game of whack-a-mole is actually what um, drove legitimacy of the Bitcoin Foundation in the early days. I mean, one of my earliest memories in crypto is, of course, the trip down to FinCEN, and uh, I, I think you were involved in the foundation uh, then, Charlie. You didn't come with, but I know you were. I think it was decided I was too young to go or something <laughs> well, we that's joke. literally what every every meeting yeah great charlie you're gonna stay here so we uh so just by way of background uh, we got a letter from uh fincen and uh the foundation and the letter uh offered to um uh, host us down in dc um and we were we were flabbergasted we, we thought oh my gosh that's 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 such a tremendous opportunity to to get our message across um and, and we had to do it. So FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, which is a bureau of the Department of the Treasury in D.C., they're tasked with administering the Bank Secrecy Act, um, which is all the AML and KYC rules that come from that act and the Patriot Act and so on and so forth. They offered to throw a party uh, down in D.C. And in their special regulatory way. And um, four of us went uh, and attended and, and gave a presentation to what ended up being all of DC who had any even tangential interest in Do you crypto. remember what they served? Was it bagels? <laughs> what for food? Yeah. I'm just curious. I try to set the stage. I would hope it was bagels. None of we 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 were all too nervous to eat. Um Yeah, I would it, be too. I mean, think about it. It was CIA, FBI, DOJ, CFTC, SEC, um FTC uh, I mean, the IRS, there, there must have been a dozen 
agencies in the room and represented at that meeting. And it was the just four of us from the Bitcoin Foundation. And we got up there on stage and, 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 and we projected blockchain.info on the, on the big screen and literally took them through a Bitcoin transaction. It said, wow, this is a sending address. This is a receiving address. This is a UTXO. This is the amount of the transaction. And this was pre the guidance, that first guidance. Was this pre that guidance? Uh, actually, this was a reaction to the guidance. If you remember in 2013, FinCEN released its first guidance in March. Do I remember? That was and, the single most yeah. important thing of my life. I remember <laughs> when that guidance came out. And um, the industry uh, lost its lost its collective cool. Uh, yeah, because that was the first time the government ever said anything about Bitcoin like publicly that would even be considered clarity of law like ever. Yep. Yep. That and was the foundation frankly, of the of our future was that FinCEN guidance. You know, we like I I always joke about how um how some of my my tweets haven't aged well or how some of the things that I wrote haven't aged well. I I look at that guidance and I'm actually I'm 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 pretty impressed that I don't know maybe 80% of it is aged pretty well but anyway when it when it when it came out right we were all just we were all shocked um I mean nobody was I should say surprised that the government had taken a position like this but some of the things in the guidance were were just wrong right like I said 80% of it was mostly um has mostly aged pretty well but a big chunk of it has to not. give an understanding about how important that was. This was 2013. So seven years ago, almost, or well, no, six and a half. Everything has changed, right? So what were some things that, what were some things in that first FinCEN guidance that, you know, so, so as I remember it and tell me if I'm wrong, Marcos, I remember it, nothing was like explicitly said except for like, you know, that now everything's money transmission. It was still, unclear, but it provided more clarity to allow you to formulate your own, I guess, um, opinions, legal opinions, which are, um, which up until like the whole ICO movement, I, you know, legal opinions were, were, were seen as, as something that could, you know, protect a company, but that's another conversation. But I guess, um, what are some things that were originally like said there that if you guys hadn't taken seriously and not just you, but the collective, you know, legal community of, of our industry, if if these things weren't taken seriously, where could we see ourselves? Like, what kind of dystopia could we see ourselves in today if we just kind of said, you know, because, Marco, a lot of people didn't agree with you back then. A lot of people said, especially in my, in my camps, were saying, fuck the government, let's ignore them, fuck the FinCEN, let's ignore that too. Ignore, ignore, ignore. We don't need the government to do our own thing. Now, obviously, I didn't say that, but a lot of people did. You didn't say that either. You said, no, we need to make allies, we need to engage, we need to go to FinCEN. If you hadn't done that, where could we see ourselves today? I, I just want people to understand how important it is to not ignore and to actually engage. Look, I, I said this earlier, but I think that if we at the Bitcoin Foundation and um, other allies in the space, I know Kraken did a lot of work at the time, um, and so did BitPay uh, and Coinbase to a, a, a lesser extent. But had, had we not engaged, it's pretty simple. This would, this would all be illegal or close to it. There would be prohibitions at the federal and state levels uh, on using this stuff. Because at the time... Uh, the only, the only people with any sort of um, any sort of pipe into Washington 
with an, any sort of uh, loudspeaker onto the state regulators or the press. And the press aren't reporting on how folks are using Bitcoin for remittances and to avoid uh, the consequences of um, ir- irresponsible governments and irresponsible uh, monetary policy. They, they weren't reporting on that. They were reporting on the Silk Road. They were reporting on ransomware. They were re- reporting on how Bitcoin was being used for all these nasty things because you that's got to change the narrative. And we had to we had to wrestle control of that narrative, and we did so as sort of a ragtag band of rebels. Well, that's uh, why the foundation was actually started. If you ask Roger, I mean, ask Gavin. So, so the the whole concept came from a a, a, a coffee lunch, a, co- a coffee that Gavin and I had in 2011 in in Vienna. And I remember he told me, he's like, you're too young. But I remember like the whole idea was Gavin was frustrated. He's like, Charlie, you're a member of our only business community because the business community was like three people back then. Um, <laughs> but Gavin was frustrated because Gavin was a developer. He was the only one of the only people back then. It was Mike and a few others. But Gavin was like, I'm sitting here. And this is literally how the conversation went, not verbatim, but um, he's like, I'm fucking sitting here and I'm coding my ass off. Well, cause you know, Gavin was very calm. So imagine Gavin was frustrated. This is what he'd say. I'm sitting my, I'm coding my ass off and there's just negative press all the time. And then the, you know, the four companies we have in the space, you BitPay, Mt. Gox and blockchain, you guys don't, aren't working together enough. So the whole concept that he came up with, was, let's do like an association, like a trade and, and to do exactly what you said to wrestle back the narrative. And I think. A lot of people look at the foundation and say, yeah, it's stupid. It's, But I would kind of say like the foundation had a job. It had a mandate. It did it, it, did it, it did its job very well during those years for what it needed to do. And yeah, it, things fell apart. The people, myself included on the original board, ran afoul and things got screwed up. But the original mandate of what it was supposed to do, I feel like it did, it did its job well those two years. It, listen, uh, the... Without the Blockchain Association at the time, between 2013 and 2015, uh, there is, there is, I mean, a trivial, a nominal chance that any of this industry would be here today. I like to think that good things will come about no matter what. It just takes, you know, over a long enough period of time and we will have, we, we will live in the best world that we could possibly live in, right? The brightest timeline. But I got to tell you, I, without the work that, um, that was done in those early days, I, I truly don't believe that we would have had the freedom to innovate in the way that we have um, over the last five or six years. I mean, the, the, the thought process, for example, I'll give you a great example of why policy works why doing crypto policy actually uh, drives real ROI, not only for the industry, but for your company specifically. If you remember a little while back, the NHS in in the United Kingdom, the National Health Service got hacked. I wouldn't say hacked. They were the victim of a ransomware attack. And all of the health records of the United Kingdom, because they have a public health service there, all of them were encrypted and inaccessible. And in exchange to unencrypt them, um, this ransomware demanded what? Bitcoins. Yeah, it was like ten Bitcoin or something. I it was remember. not even. It was not even. A, it would have been a good trade, right? <laughs> all, of, all of the health records of the entire nation um, 
for 10 bitcoins. Uh, Still when, a good trade. When, when the when the, when the press got a hold of this, and when uh, the the government in the UK got a hold of this, we heard almost no calls for banning Bitcoin. Almost almost none, and that that didn't just happen. That was that was the work that 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 was the result of years and years of advocacy. I mean, you have to look at that problem and say and understand that the first person to look at that, the very first thing they would have thought was, well, this obviously couldn't happen without Bitcoins. These ransomware purveyors, these hackers would, would never be able to execute this attack without magic internet money. It's mostly just used for criminal activity anyway. Why don't we just ban crypto? Um, would be we, easier, right? We, it, it would have been trivial for the government to do. European governments in particular find those kinds of things to be pretty easy to do. But they didn't. Not only did they not ban it, they, we didn't even hear any calls for it. Why? Because over the last four to five years before that, we had anticipated those kinds of attacks. And we developed those relationships. We worked with those internal champions. We delivered the messages. We countered the media narrative. Um, and instead... Uh, instead of calls for banning Bitcoin, we heard stories about OPSEC tightening, <laughs> tightening your security practices. Do better, yeah. The right story, the right narrative. And look, we don't have a lot of wins. We don't have a lot of Ws in uh, crypto policy and and crypto regulation. Um, that is a, an undisputable, an undisputable win. Um, so that's a great example of how some of this stuff actually works. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launch. Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees, and I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment. But you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories.
And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And, and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. I don't know. I, I think I would disagree with the last thing you said, because I feel like you should have more wins because anything that's not a loss is a win. Um, and even if you don't change the narrative to what you want it to be, if you can skew it to what it, how bad it could have been and you had a part in that, then, then that's a win to me. You know, I like, Mark, I, I almost, you know, and I'm sure you did this too. You look at new industries and, and you look at the crypto industry and you say the crypto industry like went through that. And the perfect example is the electronic cigarette industry, right? Um, to me, at least, you know, you, how many that that industry like, um, you know, you look at medical cannabis dispensaries, you look at and the majority of the industry lab tests their electronic cigarettes. You buy an electronic cigarette from a store. It's by a real brand, Juul. They're lab tested. They're checked, self-regulated or regulated. I'm not really sure. But then you have like these fake black market ones because you could buy the empty electronic cigarette cartridges on eBay. You get these fake ones and you have these, you know, kids who have bad intentions, you know, 
are are thinning out the 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 cannabis or whatever the nicotine and putting in vitamin E. Vitamin E is getting people sick, and like two people died in the whole country, the whole world. But then you see like Trump trying to ban electronic cigarettes. So like, is that a good example of how things could be if you guys hadn't been doing what you're doing? Yeah, and 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 when I say you know we don't have a lot of wins, I don't mean that we haven't done well. I mean that it's often difficult to articulate success. Engage that, yeah. The metrics are difficult in in regulatory work. You know, you can you can look at us and say, "Wow, we're a hundred x what we were in 2013 as an industry in terms of value created and value generated." And that's that's a metric, right? But it's sort of a shared metric that we've all contributed to, and it's difficult to say, "Oh, that's because that's the time that Coinbase's uh, chief policy officer, whomever, um, a government affairs officer." spoke with the treasury about this issue like you it's metrics are tough and when you can find an example like that uh, that demonstrates effectiveness um that stuff is gold and and you can learn a lot you can you can learn a lot from the process it seems like we've kind of like what you're telling me is that there have been times that we've um we've had to kind of like walk ourselves back from the edge or like where um where we've had you've had to go in and, and different committees or representatives of companies and and I, I'm largely not involved in that anymore. But you know you read about it, um, and so thank you for telling us this. We've largely been walked. You know we, you've had you guys have have had to walk our industry back from from something really bad that could potentially happen, and things ended up being a lot less bad. Um, I think as, as someone who's not a, a, an attorney and someone who's just you know another industry person. I look at kind of the factus stuff that's going on right now, and it, and I'll be honest, like that's that worries me the most. The travel rule, I guess, and and I'm still a little unfamiliar. Can you can you kind of give us and you know very briefly like what that's about? Should we be worried about it? What what does it say? Who is facta? And sh- you know, like where will we see? How will that kind of play out? And how do you want it to play out? Yeah, so I think the acronym you're looking for is the FAT of uh, the FAT. What did I say? What is uh, factor? FACTA, which is the what is FACTA? <laughs> that's, a, that's an IRS track. <laughs> oh, of course I say that. <laughs> um, no, so the FATF is the Financial Action Task Force. Um, they are not a government. Uh, they are not a government organization. They're not a regulator. They're not a legislator. They are an international organization uh, that is entirely voluntary that member states uh, send delegates to. And it acts as a for, as a, a forum for developing policy on um, preventing illicit crime, which is a fancy way of saying it's where all the countries get together uh, and talk about the new standards they want to put in place for uh, preventing money laundering, you know, doing AML and KYC and that kind of thing. And uh, one of the greatest things to come out of the FATF recently is this universal application of what we domestically call the funds travel rule. Um, let's just talk about the fun, ab- about the travel rule for a minute, then I can tell you what happened at the FATF level. So the travel rule says, basically, that if you're a financial institution, if you run a financial institution, and you're going to send money to another financial institution, don't just send the money, also send a bunch of information about the customer. Now, 
that is trivial for banks to do because they're all on more or less the same network. They, they use Fedwire, they use ACH, they use Swift as a messaging channel, right? They, they all kind of use the same networks and there's nobody on those networks besides financial institutions, usually just banks. Um, that's obviously not, not the case with crypto, right? It's easy to do when everyone is on the same network because you know that whenever you're sending money, you're sending it to a financial institution. There's no, there's no check. There's no, oh gosh, uh, who, is, who is this money really going to? Is it going to an FI or is it going to some individual? Because only financial institutions are on those networks. Contrast that with Bitcoin, for example, which is an open and permissionless network. There are plenty of people using Bitcoin directly, using the actual network, who are not financial institutions. I self-custody my crypto. You probably self-custody your crypto. You maybe have some crypto on an exchange that's actually held with a financial institution, but you probably hold a little bit yourself directly. At least I hope you do, right? That's kind of the point of all this stuff. Sure. Um, when Coinbase or any other financial institution sends an on-chain transaction, by default, given just the information they have publicly available on the blockchain, there's actually there's no way to tell. I mean, you can sort of probabilistically infer who uh, probabilistically infer whether a particular network address belongs to a financial institution or not. But you can never really be sure. Um, even if the customer reports it, you can never really be sure. And the travel rule does not have any sort of knowledge requirement. It simply says that if you're a financial institution and you're sending money to another financial institution, then you have to send along all that KYC information. So you can understand why this might be a problem for crypto companies. But here's, here's, here's the rub. FinCEN has taken the position since 2013, since that guidance that we talked about, since, since, since March of 2013, FinCEN has taken the position that that rule applies. Nothing has changed in the United States, according to FinCEN. Really? This, this, this has always been the law. If you haven't done it, then you've, been, then you've been breaking the law. So, how on earth... So two questions. One, why why is everybody uh, so up in arms about this new FATF proclamation? And two, if this was the uh, if this was the law in in the U.S. all along, why are folks in the U.S. upset about it? And frankly, how are we all still here and and all of us are not being you know thrown in uh, FinCEN jail? <laughs> being thrown in I've FinCEN been thrown jail. in FinCEN jail. <laughs> <laughs> Right, but how would that? How would it even work? Like, so, well, here, 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 here are the answers to the questions. One, FinCEN has uh, stated that they have are, and, and frankly, it's other regulators that have stated for them uh, that they are forbearing. They are exercising what's called forbearance, which means they could throw you in FinCEN jail, but they're not. They're, they they are choosing not to because they recognize externalities. But that has been the case since. I should say, 2014 to be specific, when FinCEN hosted roundtables with BSAG, the Bank Secrecy Act Advisory Group, and, and the rest of the U.S. Treasury on how we could actually implement the travel rule. And those meetings did not go well. Those were knockdown, drag out, high blood pressure, red-faced, you're crazy, no, you're crazy meetings. 
And interesting. Over, I just don't understand why there was, chill, there was a chill over over the course of 2014 and 2015 on into 2016, where uh, FinCEN and Treasury were uh, on lockdown and they were having minimal communications with anybody in the industry because they were trying to figure out how to deal with this travel rule issue. And that is, that's a remarkable piece of history in that they believed that they couldn't just enforce the travel rule. That's kind of crazy to think. We're talking about one of the most powerful agencies in the world. They, for, they exercised forbearance. They, they forbeared from simply enforcing the law as it stood. The law that they had recently reaffirmed publicly in the guidance. That is, that's, 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 that's kind of mind-boggling. If, if, if you think about it, that our little old industry somehow avoided all being thrown in FinCEN jail for not following the travel rule. Um, and now, of course, people are up in arms about it because uh, oh, guess who, was the, who, who held the fat of presidency over the last term? the United States, and we use that last term to export, export our existing U.S. policy to the rest of the world in an attempt to break that freeze, in an attempt to crack that ice around travel rule enforcement. Because one of the big excuses we used in the U.S. was, well, we enforce the travel rule as, as a U.S. exchange, but exchanges in the rest of the world don't don't have the travel rule. They're not going to identify themselves to us. And so how could this travel rule thing possibly work? How to some we- extent, that's right, right? Because if you're a, uh, an enforcement agent and you send a subpoena to any, you know, or you tried to, you, you have an issue or you need to, you know, you want to go after someone or whatever or a company or whatever, uh, in the U.S., there's a legal process for it. You can, you can subpoena different companies, you can subpoena different people, and you could connect the dots. Globally, it's very difficult. Try subpoenaing, try sending a subpoena for information to an exchange based in Russia, for example. So the whole concept with the travel rule is to export, like you said, uh, policy in the United States uh, globally and allow us to, you know, kind of retain well, that pol- policeman status, right? Well, I should say the travel rule assumes that compliance is possible. And the exchanges were saying throughout 2014, 2015, during during this um, this chilled this period of, of of chilled and strained relationships, that well, travel rule compliance actually is not possible. It's certainly not practicable. FinCEN kind of got it, um, and they and there just wasn't will to enforce this impracticable rule uh, onto the onto the industry. So what did FinCEN do? Well, they're not just going to sit by and let their laws uh, not be followed. Um, the Treasury exported its regulations to the rest of the world. So now, via the FATF, the whole world, or at least all of the FATF nations, um, will uh, ha- are now pressured to come into compliance. There's no rule. There's no regulation that says all the FATF countries now have to comply with the travel rule. But... Now, there's significant pressure and that there are FATF standards out there that says if you aren't complying with the travel rule, well, you can be placed on the FATF gray list, the, the FATF gray list, which is a colloquial term for a very specific list yeah. of countries of uh, money laundering concern. And that increases um, all of your – that increases the potential uh, money laundering risk to your institution, which means – 
you need to put in place more uh, checks and uh, deeper procedures to to mitigate those risks, which means you have to spend more money. So it's this whole steamroll, uh, s- snowball, I should say, effect um, that, that the FATF has put in place. Uh, so legally speaking, nothing has changed. Practically speaking, we are on the path to um, a, seeing a lot of pressure from all of our local governments to comply with the travel rule. Um, I want to ask you about blockchain.info and and how you guys have been able to, um, you know, enforce some of these things, but at the same time maintain, you know, a non-custodial solution and how that works um, and how governments, because you, you guys are so big with 44 million wallets, how they perceive that. So I know that's not unique, but let's just say we assume like every person has a crazy amount of wallets. You can still say that you have over a million unique users easily someone can say that so um you've been able to maintain a non-custodial solution for so long and you know and i was a customer for many years um and then eventually i moved over to hardware wallets but until before hardware wallets were launched blockchain.info was the non-custodial solution still very much is for a software wallet um do you get do you get and and what that means is that um when someone creates an account, they can largely go about their business and without, you know, super amount of oversight from the and, you know, the ability to, to freeze your account and all these different things, reverse them. Um, like, for example, something that Coinbase would be able to do. Do you get um, calls from from governments ever, you know, trying to, like, uh, talk to you guys about ever becoming a custodial solution or installing some sort of like backdoor have you gotten those have you gotten you know i guess you can't talk about subpoenas but if you have you um seen regulators frustrated by the fact that you guys are a non-custodial solution the, the short answer is no because that's 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 not the right way to that's not the right way to describe it and i'll tell you how how the interactions um have gone so as I said, I've been Blockchain's Global Policy Council, or I was Blockchain's Global Policy Council uh, since 2013, I think, 2014. Or it's, <laughs> it's, it's been long enough. It's been long enough that we've um, established relationships with the relevant regulators so that they understand what we are and what we do and why anybody, technically, technologically speaking, can do what we do and why what we do is important for the industry. Um, and, you know, we've played our, our fair share of whack-a-mole uh, when new threats have come up to self-custody, the right to self-custody. Um, we've advocated for that right consistently since, since I joined the company uh, many years ago. But more important than just the regulators are also the boots on the ground, law enforcement. Um, we've worked closely with law enforcement all over the world uh, for for a very long time, to the point where you know we, we we have a good understanding of who the people in law enforcement are that coordinate um, crypto enforcement and ensuring that they have the tools that they need to understand how blockchain wallets work, um, what you can get from blockchain wallets and what you can't get from blockchain wallets and um, what we're actually doing here. I mean, blockchain is very much, uh, in in terms of our wallet, 
the wallet is 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 very much like leather wallets. We create them, we uh, we weave them together, uh, we tan them and press them and ship them out to the customer. Um, and uh, law enforcement, by and large, ha- is still able to use traditional enforcement techniques um, together with whatever information we can we can we can provide in in the, the right circumstances. And that's important, right? That's that's important for our industry long term. Yeah. Look, it, if you don't have the right to self-custody your funds, your crypto, I, I'm not really sure why we're all here in the first place. And that, you know, you ask me, you know, why why I left private practice and joined blockchain. It, it is because over the years I, I came to really and truly believe that. I think that there's uh, there will always be a need for custodial solutions. And uh, exchanges, for example, provide... Uh, critical liquidity to the ecosystem. Um, at the end of the day, though, if you don't have that option to self-custody, it's it's difficult to really understand why it is that we are all doing this. Um, otherwise, we're just sort of rebuilding Wall Street using a different backend technology. And that's that's not quite as exciting as... That's not what we're here for. We're not here. We're not here to rebuild Wall Street with the same the same technologies and just kind of make it look better. Um, but I think that good intent, this is the problem, Marco is, and this is one of the things that worry me the most about this industry for the future is that good intentions are not transferable. So you develop, um, you develop and, and consult and advise on policy. Um, I help develop an industry, tell stories. A lot of people do that too. By and large, our industry, I mean, even with the whole, you know, ICO drama, by and large, our industry has good intentions. Yes, there are scams and there are frauds. And we saw that with 2017 and 2018, a lot of them actually. But by and large, I still think that the core of our industry has good intentions. So what's my fear? My fear is that if we create precedents now with people that have good intentions, down the road, people with bad intentions, because they're not transferable, uh, may be doing something different. And the perfect example I could think of is, you know, Vitalik allowing the rollback of the Ethereum blockchain, however many years ago that was. Yes, the intentions were good, but what happens down the road um, where intentions are bad? Why am I asking you this? Because, um, you know, you would look at you look at the SAFT and before the SAFT was uh, was was, you know, um, something that was architectured, architectured before the SAFT was something that was even discussed or developed. Um, there was no standard way you know to have tokens or like for companies to do tokens or anything with tokens so you you and and a team by and large authored that concept the SAF project and most of the time it was done that way in the right way and the intentions were good but obviously there are people who had bad intentions who did bad things um did you foresee that happening do you think that you, when you guys were writing that, de- you know, or putting it all together and, and and advising clients potentially on this, do you think, did you ever say to yourself, you know, maybe if this gets in the hands of someone who has bad intentions uh, to do like a fraud or a scam, then this wouldn't, you know, by us doing this, it may not be the best idea. <laughs> well, look, I, I think you're looking at it in the right way and that, you know, we as an industry have created so many enabling technologies and techniques um and we've allowed people we've 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 given people power that they never had 
before. We've permitted them to do things that they really haven't been able to do before. Um, whether you created a wallet to help people send, store, and receive crypto without an intermediary, um, or you created an exchange to uh, allow people to onboard and offboard into and out of the crypto ecosystem, we're, we're, we're all doing new things here, and the consequences of those new things are not always known to us. It is, um, it is this sort of universal, um, this universal constant of this industry. My contribution at the time was as counsel, as uh, an advisor and an advocate for my clients. And the SAF project came about because clients were coming to me saying, I want to do this thing. What are the risks and how can I do it better? That was the genesis of the, of the SAFT project framework. SAFTs already existed. Clients were coming to us for, I mean, six months uh, with, with these things. And they were toxic. They were absolutely, <laughs> absolutely toxic. Yeah, because uh, business people don't really know how to do this the right way. That's what we have you for. Well, I mean, I, I like to think that we played a hand in that. But, you know, the, these, these, um, these documents that, that, that they were coming to us with didn't account for any even basic commercial risks that come along with introducing tokens to what was otherwise an equity-based framework. And so the SAFT project was born. We, we, we looked at this thing. We did the research. And we, after, after a whole lot of uh, analysis, we decided, look, there's actually something good here. There's, there's something that, that can work here. Um, and we can tell our clients that, look, there are the transaction you're proposing is risky. This document you want to use is risky. Here are some improvements that you can use to minimize those risks, to mitigate risks and that's that's why um that's why people come to council they want to be told what what are the risks here um and when we wrote the white paper that was our that was our intention we wanted to expose the risks with the existing uh ico um with the existing practice of icos um and to uh, sort of an undeniable extent that that was successful god i what? hate that term ico I mean, look, 60 days after after we published the SAFT white paper, no, maybe 30 days after we published the SAFT white paper, there were no more ICOs in the United States. None. It, the SAFT project killed ICOs with, without, without question, at least in the U.S., because that's obviously the law that it was interpreting. Sure. Now, if I look back on it over the last several years, and we've seen, um, we've seen a lot We've seen a lot of the consequences of, of that, and we, 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 we cleaned up a lot, but I think we also over-enabled quite a bit, um, and that was, you know, there were, there were supporters and there were critics at the time, and um, most of the legal criticism of the SAFT framework was what wasn't particularly convincing, but what was convincing was this sort of cultural critique in that, you know, do we, do we really want this? Do we really want to give venture capitalists more control over uh, f a method of financing that's supposed to be egalitarian, that's not supposed to be, um, uh, that's not supposed to preserve the accredited investor's seat at the table. Sure. And and for those for those objections, I, I got to say I can't argue with them. I I see I see the I see the merit in them. I think I agree with you too. And you know, on that note, if we were to zoom out, you know, into 
to end the show, if we were to zoom out on on our industry and and I'm and I'm almost starting to like do this a decade in crypto thing or a decade in Bitcoin, even though we're not there yet. But I'm I'm like starting now, a few years before. Um, there are very few constants in life. Um, you're a constant in the in the space. Uh, Blockchain.info is a constant in the space, and um, I think that both of you guys, uh, myself, I hope myself included too, will con will continue to remain a constant in the space. Um, so the last question I wanted to ask you, um, if you were to zoom out and you look, you know how like we name generations like Generation X, Millennials, Gen Y, blah blah blah. If you were to like assign um, a term to certain years of crypto, or even like a sentence, like you take like if I were to do, I'll tell you what I would do. I don't have good, you know, good names for it, but I would separate. Um, and obviously my personal life biases this, but if I were to separate the years, I would say like you had the 2009, you had the 2009, 2010 years, which were like the super early years. And you had the 2011 to 2000. And um, I'm going to say like the last month of 2013, I don't include 2014, but I do include the last month of 2013. I think those 2011, 2012, 2013, those three years were like one year, one one like era. Then you have like 2005 to 2016, maybe like the pre 20,000 bull market. And then you have like the now. Now maybe now it needs to be broken up. Um, Blockchain.info has been a constant all those years. You know, um, how do you see Blockchain.info remaining a constant over the next 10 years? What do you see? I say blockchain.info because it's it's habit. But I know you guys probably spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to get people to say blockchain.com. And I'm not helping that. OK, so how do you see blockchain.com in the future, I guess, is my question. But but on a on a zoomed out, you know, like like perspective, because you can do that. Most other companies, even Coinbase can't do that yet. You guys can do that because you've been around for so long. Foundational piling in the foundation of this industry do you see blockchain.com taking a back seat to that being the forefront remaining? Do you want to continue doing that? Like, give me the spiel. <laughs> well, look, I, I, I appreciate you saying blockchain has been a constant. Um, blockchain.com has been a constant. Um, and really it, it has, I mean, it's represented the core of what this industry could stand for. If, if we, if, if we all came together and spoke with the same voice the, the right to self-custody is, um, is foundational. Uh, we will continue to advocate for that. We will continue to build upon that basic framework. Uh, but the last however many years, the last six years, seven, eight years of the company's growth um, has been, uh, well, a growth story it is it has been growth i mean look you can you, if if you go to blockchain.com now you can go to our charts page you can see uh our our hockey stick graph right and and that's actually been used as a proxy for the whole industry uh one of the large banks just just actually released significant analysis on this point and with with that chart at front and center just go to blockchain.com charts you can see scroll all the way to the bottom and you'll see my wallet number of users the growth looks like a hockey stick and that's not just us that's the whole industry um we want to build on that growth and we want to build products and services that not only that people who um use crypto want to use but the kind of people that, that contribute to this chart the people who come to us 
because we ship functional, usable products that people want, and not just an exchange, not just a wallet, but an entire ecosystem of products that helps you uh, make the most out of the very uh, foundational values of crypto. Those, those are the people that we build for. Um, and we're going to see more of that over the next few years. In 99% of products that we use or services that we use, we don't care about the ethos or, you know, the the beliefs, you know, the core, the company values. Okay, we kind of do like, for example, like some people won't eat at Chick-fil-A because, you know, they're not open on Sunday or they're too, whatever. You, you see my point. Um, but in our industry, it matters, right? Like what companies you use is everyone has an opinion on not just your products, your services, but what are the company's values? Some, and you know that every company in the space um, believes certain things and some are like super anarchist, some are super not. Like Everyone's different. Um, what would you say is the core um, constant in, in, in blockchain.com in terms of corporate values that um, because you're st- – your staff. I mean, you look at um, you look at Peter Smith, and you and Peter have known each other for for so many years. And you and Peter were at my birthday party. You were. I remember when I first got arrested. You were at my parents' house. I'll never forget that. Um, Nick Carey and um, uh, Ben Reeves, the people who founded the companies and have been running your company, um, have this co- these core ethos, the company values. Have you been able to maintain that? Do you think you'll be able to maintain that for the future on behalf of your customers? And it's important to them. Yes. And every organization has that challenge, um, particularly ones that are high that are high growth like we are um, in industries that are high growth like we are. The core values of uh, the people in this industry and reflect the people, I should say, the people, the core values of the people in this company reflect those core values of the people in the industry broadly. If you look at some of our early employees, um, I mean, the, the values of those employees are markedly different. The personal values are markedly different than those folks who just joined us in, uh, you know, in 2018 or 2019. Um, but they stick around. We have people who have been here for uh, six years. Um, <laughs> wow. It's, it's um, the, the, the values change, right? Some people came here for... Uh, because they were crypto anarchists. And then some people came here because they were Wall Street traders. We all believe that this this technology is going to drive those values that we share in common. And that's what people talk about when they say, well, you know, a rising tide raises all ships. Um, and the ongoing question is, well, when does that phase end? When do we stop uh, all advocating together as an industry, because we by and large share the same values. I mean, I, ha- I hope never, though, right? Because we, we, we put each other in self check mode. It it has it has not happened yet. It 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 that 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 tide has 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 never ceased to raise all ships. Um, there was obviously a period in 2017 when um, things became pretty focused on financialized products and fundraising. Um, but by and large, that has found its place in the ecosystem, and we continue to move forward together. And that's um, that's that is not an easy thing to do, filled with a lot uh, in an industry filled with a lot of people who believe a lot of different things, and particularly in a company with a lot of people who uh, believe in a lot of different things. But we've done it so far, and 
you know, it hasn't been luck. <laughs> it's been hard work and we're going to continue that. As they say, as Roger Veer would say, from your mouth to the ears of the Magic Sky people. You know, because I used to say from from your mouth to God's ears and from your lips to God's ears, right? Yeah, yeah, Roger would make fun of me. But um, Marco, you are the president and chief legal officer of blockchain.com. Your resume and history in the space is way too long for me to read off on a piece of paper. Everyone else can Google it. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're super busy. But thank you so much on behalf of the Hilton industry and myself included for everything you've done. And I hope to have you back on the show in a year from now to talk about what you've been working on. Thanks, Charlie. It's great to catch up, man. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.